a lot of the conversations we're having with producers today that are raising nursery pigs is that strep is becoming a primary issue where they can't necessarily identify other concurrent health challenges, whether it be they are PERS positive or a PERS stable flow or they have an active influenza. It's, it looks like a primary strep outbreak. And in a lot of flows, this is a very consistent, predictable problem where you have pigs that get put into the nursery and in a certain set number of days, they start to see the same onset of symptoms and what can be predictable turn to turn, which is something that we might not see with E. coli outbreaks as you kind of break that break cycle. But with strep, it can be once it's in a flow of pigs, a really persistent headache for producers. Swine it. Welcome to the Swine it Podcast Roundtable. This is a new series of episodes created by the Swine it Podcast and Cargill, where we'll have roundtables with experts of the global swine industry tackling subjects that can influence the producer's bottom line. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine it Podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Brooke Smith of Cargill Animal Health and Dr. Ryan Strobel of Swine Veterinary Center. Hello, both of you. How are you doing today? Good, absolutely. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. So I'm glad to have you both on today. Um, for our audience, some of them may not be familiar with one or both of you. And so before we jump into the topic at hand, I'm just going to have you both do a very brief introduction of, of yourselves. And so, uh, Brooke, we'll have you start. Sure. Um, you can just to Brooke Smith. Well, Laura mentioned, I am a nutritionist and veterinarian on the technical service team for cargo animal nutrition in the pork division. Uh, I am a recent graduate of University of Illinois. I completed both my DVM and my PhD at University of Illinois. My PhD completed under Dr. Ryan Dilger, focusing on the interactions of nutrition and health in weaned pigs and understanding how manipulation in the diet and ingredients there can influence health outcomes. And um, for Cargill, a lot of what I do is along that same vein as understanding the health aspect of the pigs that we feed a little more clearly, allowing us to make some more strategic and hopefully meaningful selections on the diet strategy side. So I currently live in Mason, Michigan, so where I was born and raised, so happy to be back up in northern country, um, but I'm sure it's cold in the Midwest where you're at too. <laughs> Absolutely. A little warmer now, though, than what it was this morning. <laughs> yes. Well, Ryan, how about you? Would you mind introducing yourself a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a 2017 graduate of the University of Minnesota Vet School. Uh, been at Find Vet Center now for just coming on five years here this summer. Um, get to work with a variety of clients, some large, some small. Um, but I am not a nutritionist, just a veterinarian, so I'm not a doctor doctor. <laughs> That's okay. We like to have veterinarians on the show as well, so we, we're good. So um, I think the, the topic today that I'd like to discuss with both of you uh, really kind of goes both with health and nutrition. And uh, we recently had a couple of conversations around E. coli in the nursery and I think a lot of people, um, certainly over the last year and a half, have been struggling and, and starting to figure out that process. Um, but one of the other organisms that maybe we're, we're starting to hear some conversation about as well is, is Streptococcus suus. And so um, maybe let's start there. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the nursery between both of these organisms and 
maybe what's changed even, you know, from three, four, five years ago now? Yeah. I mean, still, right, slightly more recent graduate uh, than Ryan here, but it's still in veterinary curriculum taught as a opportunistic secondary infection pathogen, um, that it's, it's part of the normal upper respiratory microbiome. Um, and if a pig gets some other infection, like PERS or influenza, makes them more at risk to become infected with strep suis. Well, I think that's the case. A lot of the conversations we're having with producers today that are raising nursery pigs is that strep is becoming a primary issue where they can't necessarily identify other concurrent health challenges, whether it be they are PERS positive or a PERS stable flow or they have an active influenza. It's, it looks like a primary strep outbreak. And in a lot of flows, this is a very consistent, predictable problem where you have pigs that get put into the nursery and in a certain set number of days, they start to see the same onset of symptoms and what can be predictable turn to turn, which is something that we might not see with E. coli outbreaks as you kind of break that break cycle. But with strep, it can be once it's in a flow of pigs be really persistent headache for producers. And that's a lot of the conversations we have on the nutrition side is this is something that's occurred and it keeps coming back. Is there any strategy for me to utilize to make their clinical outcomes better? Um, I don't know if you would agree with that kind of change in presentation, Ryan. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely become more of a primary issue versus five, six years ago. A lot of producers or even depopulating herds just due to strep. I mean, that that's a completely different story than you would have heard five, six years ago. And so the reason behind that, there's probably multifactorial. Um, a lot of the reasons we discuss out in the field are uh, a genetic change, whether that's a guilt source change, whether that's going from uh, more traditional fires to the Duroc fire now, and I'll talk about that both on the strep side and the E. coli. Um, there's been multiple factors from a, a feed antibiotic standpoint that we're feeding less antibiotics in the feed, is that starting to play an impact not only at the sow farm level and shedding to piglets, but also is that letting the, uh, the strep grow more out in the, in the nursery phase as well. Um, and then we're also seeing, and I don't know if it's seeing more or learning more, but we're finding more serotypes of strep and then associating that with virulence and cortical signs. I'd say it's a ton of changes in the last five years, but yeah, it's definitely become the top of the list for a lot of producers. So I find that interesting that we're hearing of, of producers doing depopulations associated with streptosuis. Um, what about autogenous vaccines? Is it something we used to do quite regularly where we were thinking about a streptosuis issue on a, on a sow farm to try to prevent some of the downstream issues? Is that not working for most producers today? Are we not able to keep up with the serotype shifts or, or what might be kind of prohibiting that and, and needing to go to the depop side of that? Yeah, I think it depends on your situation. So the depot side of it, a lot of that has been multiplication, not wanting to shed it down to downstream sow farms. That's been more of the depopulation side. I would say from a commercial side, autogenous has been still heavily used. Uh, the debate then is which adjuvant to use, what's the timing of the vaccine, is it once or twice pre-feral, is it the piglets as well, is there maternal antibody interference? So all those things we're still learning. I don't have all the answers on any of those by any means, but um, there's a lot of different question marks that go behind the autogenous too. And I think if he made the comment on the um, on the virulence factor changes, and we're getting a better understanding of what those virulence factors mean for how that's going to present clinically. Um, but in research that's ongoing about these virulence factors, what they're finding is 
some of these influence how well strep can colonize tonsillar tissue. So if it has a higher expression of these, it has a more secure colonization. So when you look at an intervention like a vaccine, individual serotypes may be more or less uh, at risk for damage from a vaccine or neutralization versus others. So and to your point, we're isolating these from field strains. So it's how do I identify which ones are the actual ones causing the problem? Do I make really robust autogenous vaccines that have multiple serotypes and hope that I get the coverage that I need? Or do I try to be more selective? And that's something that gets volleyed back and forth quite a bit in selection for autogenous on the commercial side. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point, Brooke. And it, it's one that um, just recently I was visiting with a producer that that has struggled with strep in their nursery and um, obviously have, cons- have thought about the autogenous vaccines and they implemented that at the South Farm. But I also want to talk a little bit about the nursery itself because I think that's, you know, strep is, is quite intriguing to me in that we can't just do one round of antibiotics and it's gone. Um, generally, as, as I've always kind of been taught by veterinarians I've worked with is that we have to build that immunity to it. And so it's not uncommon to have to do a round and then we get a little bit more of a break again and we have to do another round and eventually the herd builds that immunity. And and so is that what we still see today in the barn or is that even shifting in, in how the pigs are responding in the nursery? Yeah, no, that's absolutely real. And Dr. Paul Jeske will be very happy to talk about this topic too as he's taught me a ton of it. And he would say that uh, back in the day, people would have ran nonstop medication saying, we're just going to run it until they get old enough that it's not going to be prevalent anymore. And they would have said no matter how long they ran it, whether it's 20 days, 30 days, or 100 days, when they pulled them off that medication, they still came down with strep. And so you're absolutely right, Laura, that there's a, there's a balance point of running the medication for long enough to knock down the clinical signs, but not running it so long that you get below that immunity building level. And so we've started doing medication, depending on clinical signs and justification, we'll do shorter spurts. Let's say instead of a five-day pulse, you do a two-day pulse, let those pigs build some immunity, come back to it when you see clinical signs, and run a medication again. And it's not in order to create resistance or anything else. It's in order to let that pig build immunity to that uh, natural organism that's with them. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. To that point, though, I think there are still some producers that are are having to lean pretty heavy on that antibiotic crutch and are utilizing them for what you just described, where it looks like multiple weeks on paper of antibiotics and using that. And it's in these flows that are really heavily affected and really these early onset pigs, too. So that's a little bit different of the dynamic I've seen with strep is you think about it as one to two weeks once they're placed. But I work with some of our customers who have pigs breaking within a day or two of hitting the nursery floor. And even as extreme as in that last week of farrowing, having pigs show neurologic signs associated with strep. So those ones are the customers I see, you know, running amoxicillin the second those pigs are in the door and really keeping on it just because they are too afraid to pull them back and kind of trial them off and get those um immunity building opportunities created because the severity of that strep is so severe that they have a really high level of mortality associated when they're off meds. Yeah, and that was actually one of my next questions as you were talking about brilliance factors. And so, and that's what I heard actually from this producer who's, who's very frustrated that the mortality was so high very quickly, right? And so 
that response had to be that quick. And so this may be a little bit different than when I was in the barns and, you know, you'd see one or two pigs maybe dead and, and one or two paddling or showing those neurologic signs. But, you know, they're talking one to two percent mortality within 24 hours. And so is that is that new with this with strep? Is this kind of evolving into these more brilliant types of strep or is it just that that the population itself is just higher. So we're seeing more, if that makes sense. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know if there's a clear answer, but I would say it definitely it can be both factors for sure. I think that the prevalence within the herd has gone higher on some of these or the instability within the herd. And so that really depends on the sow herd, how consistent the multiplication source is, how often they end up changing multiplication due to health breaks at the multiplication level. We've seen that more in the last couple of years that there's been more multipliers breaking with PERS. Well, then that only gives you one choice. You need to get yields from another source. And where do they go back in that pyramid within that genetic company? And where does that leave you for the small bugs, right? You're just happy to not get PERS, but that affected you now for the next 10 years that you change guilt sources. And that's a very big deal. And probably something we've learned over the last two years that it's a lot bigger deal than we would have thought three, four, five years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's kind of maybe go back a little bit then and let's talk about management. We've talked about DPOP. We've talked about autogenous vaccinations. We've talked about pulsing antibiotics to build immunity in the nursery. But what would be some common management approaches today? Let's just start with a herd that's only dealing with strep, and then we'll we'll throw E. coli in there in a second. Um, but let's just start with just strep. So if we knew we had a strep issue you know, what would be some common recommendations or things our producers should be thinking about in terms of management? Yeah, so we went down the road of medication, colonization. We talked about all those kind of preventative measures. I would say the next biggest step is nursery setup, whether it's nursery or wean to finish. If you're going to set a pig up in a high humidity, high uh, a moisture environment that allows that strep to grow faster, your chances of succeeding, even with the best plan possible, aren't very high. And so then it comes down to barter prep, stressed environments, you know, do they have enough feeder space? Is there enough water? Is there enough uh, correct reducing of stresses? Is it pen density? Is it fill time? All those things that can add stress to that animal are probably points that we don't discuss enough as a veterinarian. So I think that was also a big, big factor in the whole picture. Absolutely. I think husbandry is king when it comes to these, what we, I would call, like call them a nagging health thing. It's Anything that is negatively impacting that pig's environment or its willingness to get up and drink water regularly, eat feed, and get started into the nursery is going to create a worse clinical outcome for them. So as Ryan mentioned, all of those factors, anything that is going to lead the pig to get chilled or have poor air quality that is putting in selective pressure to grow those bacteria it's just opening the door to making it worse. Um, I know that that's a, a big focus of conversation on our team is just understanding the environment that those pigs are in. And I think veterinarians, we get in the barns pretty often because you need to. You need to have that relationship with your client on the nutritionist side. I think it's a real area of opportunity when we are thinking about how do I address health in the, in the diet or in the water if I'm deciding to put other products through that, is really understanding what's their rearing environment, how likely are they actually to eat the intervention that I'm providing. And to your point about the genetics, I think we talk about genetics as a source for strep because they can bring it in with them in the 
fields themselves as they come in as replacements. But when we think about genetic lines that are been characterized as harder starting, where these pigs are just a little bit slower to get up and move around when they're in the nursery, that they're slower to get on feed, those animals are going to be by default more susceptible to those bacterial pathogens because the longer the time that these animals are off feed, it creates microbiome mucosal instability and allows those pathogenic bacteria to grow. That's especially true for E. coli. It can be true for strep as well. So what are some management husbandry things that I need to consider if I know I have those genetic lines? Do I need to be spending extra time in the nursery getting pigs up? Do I need to add an extra walkthrough through my day if I have the staff to do so? And the staff to do so, I think it's a is a really big question right now. For those pigs that need that extra hand and TLC, do I have the personnel to do it? Cargill supports the podcast goal of helping pork producers improve their systems and business. Let's get back to the podcast. And I think those are excellent points from both of you. Um, so what? let's maybe throw E. coli into this mix now. And so um, based on what I'm hearing you all say is that the strepsuis is, is starting fairly early. We're seeing a pretty quick um, break of strep in the nursery. could be as early as one to two days after weaning. Our E. coli's are generally now hitting more in that week two, three, and four. And so how do we manage that as a producer? Because as, as we've talked about, we don't really want to feed them a constant stream of antibiotics. So how do we kind of control, prevent, manage through the possibility of dealing with two different organisms in that nursery that are not viral in nature? Yeah, Brooke, do you want to start it? I mean, take it. Yeah, no, I can start. Um, and this is putting on my nutritionist cap a little bit here. So we know that E. coli today, especially in the U.S., right, it's typically going to be that F18 strain. It's highly antimicrobial resistant. So even if I do apply antibiotics, my tool belt is very small compared to what it used to be. Uh, so I think with E. coli, from my perspective, the name of the game is how can I set that gut up to be as stable as possible in order to mitigate the direct damage that can occur from E. coli. So when I am working with producers that are struggling with E. coli breaks, a lot of my first questions are, what? Other concurrent GI diseases are coming out of the nursery. Are you a rota positive flow? Are you doing anything to mitigate that? Toxicity is another one that comes up in conversation because those pigs are at the risk of bringing those into the nursery, sharing them amongst each other, and it shows up as some low-grade diarrhea in that first week post-placement that you would potentially confuse with just dietary transition looseness, but it's actually some pathogenic looseness as well. And then that gut is still having to heal from damage when F18 E. coli receptors are present, and then it increases risk for disease. And then from the nutrition side, what are factors that I could put in the diet that are going to encourage normal enterocyte turnover, normal mucus production that just create that better, stronger barrier at the level of the gut? So that when F18 is there, do I have less likely of a hood of them finding those receptors, or it's just the integrity of my gut better that I'm less likely to have septic presentations of F18 E. coli, where that gut integrity is so damaged that I'm having bacteria enter circulation. Pretty good. 
Ryan, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we talk all the time in the industry about, you know, KD or F-18, and like Brooks said, and, and you, Laura, that F-18 is the main concern. That's the one that we end up having a lot of mortality due to, a lot of morbidity, a lot of fallout. And there, there's kind of two main ways to look at it, in my opinion. It's either from the sow farm, and it consistently, it's in every site, it comes from the sow farm. We know that. Now, how do we prevent it? Or we've seen it more and more where it's site-dependent. And so it's gotten into a site, maybe it's a weed to finish site with slats that we've turned over into a nursery multiple times. Maybe it's a nursery that's a little bit older, not the newest floors, harder to get clean. And so I'd say as a producer, we've seen both. Um, the, the easier one to manage is probably the site and it's not easy to manage by any means, but we've gone to drastic measures and that is going anywhere from cleaning water lines, pulling everything out of the office, starting with all new clothes, new boots, uh, almost like a PED cleanup for E. coli, which sounds a little bit weird, um, but we've gone to extreme circumstances, and that, that can be double disinfecting, that can be flaming water cups, bottom of feed gates, bottom of corners of pens, that can be whitewashing. Um, there's a lot of extreme measures to go to in order to prevent that E. coli from rebuilding back up in that site. But we've seen sites where three, four turns in a row, they break with an F-18, and nobody else in that flow has the problem. Um, so that's been a consistent message out there. And there's also flows that every site seems to break and it's been a frustration. And then like Brooks said, you kind of dive into, do we need to vaccinate? Do we need to do whole herd feedback? Is there other things that are going on in that south farm that are predisposing those pigs to be at risk for E. coli? Um, there's a lot of viruses out there like sapovirus or rotavirus that can cause more empirically challenged pigs. Um, and then what can we do about that? There's a lot of options to go down that road. And then I would also say on, on a flow system-wide discussion, nutrition has come into play too. And it's easy for me to put on the nutritionist hat and blame them when we talk about E. coli. Um, but there's a lot of factors that we, we notice in that. And a lot of times it's a transition going from N2 to N3. If that changes too much, that can upset that, that gut enough where it, it lets that E. coli flourish. Or is there, is there something else that's stretching that pig that we no makes sense on paper. Like it, it may make perfect sense on paper in terms of its lowest cost budget with the highest feed efficient or the best feed efficiency and the best average daily gain. Uh, but we know that that transition just isn't working in the field. And so that's where I think Brooke mentioned it too. It's, it's good to all be on the same page. Don't one party be blaming the other or vice versa. It's better if we all discuss it and say, what are the options? We're going to blitz this thing and there's 10 different things on the table. We're going to fix them all. Sanitation at the site vaccines at the south farm feedback if we can uh, we're going to change the diets to be very gut friendly and then we're going to see what happens and what works and hopefully it works so we all look at the table and go i don't know what we did but we fixed it <laughs> and that's usually the case and most of the time the producers just fine with that solution and i think you know right just switching gears from strep to e coli with nutrition being part of the conversation when we think about targeting these bugs their main site of colonization here for U.S. strains are in different spots. You have a GI and enteric pathogen, which means I know that if I'm going to put an intervention in the water or the diet, I have good sustained contact with that active ingredient versus strep, where it colonizes primarily the upper respiratory tract. So at best, I get nice transient contact, but not sustained enough that if I expected to have a direct intervention with that bacteria to work as well. So I think for E. coli, as a nutritionist, I feel like I have a lot more options to manipulate that diet to create benefit. And I mean, for Cargill, we have 
developed spec specifications in our diets that we can set structural fiber, fermentable fiber, fermentable protein, and put that into our formulas and be able to set our diets based on that to create a gut-friendly E. coli diet. And we don't have all of those options for strep because it's a systemic pathogen at the end of the day. So when we look at a diet strategy and how do we support the medical side, we know what we're doing with our veterinary team and we can try to adjust the environment to be optimum. But on the nutrition side, the name of the game really is how do I influence that entire host system and how do I influence total body inflammation, which is different, I think, when I consider what are my interventions for E. coli. And it becomes a more nebulous and and trying to understand what can I do to the diet to better support those pigs. And Brooke, from the nutrition point of view, and it's hard to talk about E. coli without diving into the detail of the nutrition, but uh, not, not in the U.S. quite yet, but I'll, I'll, a lot of other places around the world are discussing zinc and zinc levels uh, extremely often and, and whether or not that'll be a viable tool down the road. I guess, what's your perspective as a nutritionist and how do you view zinc in terms of diet formulation, E. coli prevention, and then what are we going to do when we don't have it anymore? It, that's probably going to be down the road, I get that, but it probably is in our horizon. I think it's, it's a tool that's been heavily utilized, and for good reason. There is obviously evidence that it has good efficacy at helping control some of the clinical science associated with E. coli. However, to your point, the writing's on the wall. We've already seen reductions in what are allowed levels of zinc in Canadian diets, it's on the way to the U.S. And I think at the end of the day, it is a good tool. It's become a technology that I think that we rely on pretty heavily as nutritionists in our GI challenge pigs. And what's going to happen is when that's restricted, you take that tool away, we're going to have to focus on other factors of the diet to help make up for it. So if we think about the activity of zinc, right, it's incorporated into tight junction protein. So that's the epithelial integrity part and then some direct antimicrobial properties. So a lot of what we're probably trying to replace more is that integrity point. So what are other factors in my diet that I really have to start focusing on? Fiber is one that gets in the conversation a lot, primarily structural fiber and that kind of bulk impact on the epithelium. And then how do I select my protein sources? And this is, again, to your point about transition, any dietary transition opens an opportunity for there to be irritation at the level of the gut. Um, we obviously utilize plant protein pretty heavily in the U.S. It's expensive to utilize alternatives like animal protein, especially as those feed budgets get larger. But what's my best approach for reducing the severity of that transition? Is it I extend certain nursery phases to be longer over the time period that I expect clinical disease to be the most severe? Is it, you know, the conversation around, do I try to manage two nursery phases versus three? And a lot of this comes down to conversations around economics, but in general, the best approach is make adjustments that are as small as possible between phases to reduce the amount of rapid change that occurs at the level of the gut to remain stable. But it's it's going to be tough when it's tough whenever uh, a, an option is taken away. We've seen that with antimicrobials, and what was typically a a quick grab is now not an offer 
I mean, with the movement to the BFD, then it's just, you know, we're not going to utilize it in the feed as much because it's more paperwork to get it done. So I'm going to start running stuff through the water, but am I having some issues with efficacy there? So, yeah. And I think producers are starting to think about it a little bit different than they used to, too, where it's it's easy to say this as a veterinarian, but it's hard to say it as a producer in a high cost, high feed cost environment. But at the end of the day, our nursery performance maybe needs to get reevaluated in terms of least cost diet, least cost, uh, um, able to get that pig out in the least amount of feed, you know, rather than $13 a feed budget, you're trying to get down to 12 or whatever your number is. Um, I think maybe we need to reevaluate that and say, okay, we may not get the best feed efficiency or the very best average daily gain, but we got the most live pigs out of that nursery. Now let's make our money back up in the feeder to finish stage and let's really push it there. Um, again, I don't have all the answers on what that looks like, but I think it's a different way to look at it and saying, we can re- make more money by out on the more live pigs rather than worrying about little nuances and in, in nursery performance. I absolutely agree. I think you can, in your really high health flows, which I, I think are realistically a pretty small proportion of nurseries in the U.S. today, go ahead and feed the diets that push performance for a vast majority of nursery producers, and especially in that bottom 20 to 30 percent that really struggle. It, the goal should be pigs out of the nursery, not pounds out of the nursery. And really, especially those first two phases into the entire nursery, depending on how sick these pigs are, really focus on getting those pigs as stable as possible on the health side. Allow them to grow and perform later. So that means investing probably a little bit more than you would in your diet to source highly digestible, high-quality ingredients potentially some specialty ingredients depending on what you're dealing with because I want certain bioactive properties to be uh, able to utilize to influence health. But not focusing on on that performance piece, allow that pig to be slowed down, pulled back, focus on health, and then let them perform later because they survive out of the nursery. I think we've already seen that as an industry in the last year. So we used to talk about the first diet in the nursery running at an SID lysine level of 1.42, 1.45. Many folks are now somewhere between 1.3 and 1.35. And so, Ryan, to your point, you know, as nutritionists, we're already saying, hey, we need to pull this back a little bit because we are finding that there's advantage as far as, as, as Brooke has talked about, getting that gut healed quickly after weaning because we have that disruption of the gut wall at weaning and trying to get them so they're in a little bit better shape for when the E. coli um, challenge does come into play in the nursery. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. And as a as a nutrition group, we need to continue to challenge ourselves and, and look at the tools that we have because I think there are. There are many tools that, that we sometimes put on that shelf because we are focused on trying to keep costs low. Um, but we need to visit, we need to go back and visit some of those for sure. And I think a, a call to the industry too was, you know, I think mortality reporting in publications and data being presented publicly is getting better, but always a challenge to how do I report mortality data, especially if I don't have super robust numbers, but I think it's something to continue to report because as we trial all these different interventions, that's where the money is, right? When we're thinking about success of these nutritional interventions, it's pink safe and there's a big need for the industry to continue to do that and find better ways to present that data because that's how these 
these programs make sense is on that, that morbidity mortality side. We can get some additional economics, I think, if we start paying closer attention to drug usage. So if I'm able to reduce the total amount of antibiotic use, that's obviously money in the producer's pocket. I'm not utilizing that drug, um, but probably not as robust of a number as pig saved. So. And I think one of the other things we should throw out there um, to challenge the industry when we talk about that is we were just talking at the start of this about the swine veterinary meeting coming up. And it's not uncommon to go to that meeting and hear a talk and, and the presenter would tell you the status of the pigs in that study. Um, but how many nutrition papers do we pull for nursery projects where we truly see what the disease status is unless it is a health challenge? With that, Brooke and, and Ryan, I want to thank you both for your time today, um, for our speakers or for our audience again. This is Dr. Brooke Smith with Cargill Animal Nutrition and Dr. Ryan Strobel with Swine Veterinary Center. Thank you both for your time today. Yep, thank you for having us. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.